Verse 15, we're going to dive right into the text. We're kind of mid-story, mid-stream. If, you, uh, if this is your first time or you've missed one of the last few studies, I'd encourage you to utilize some of the, the web resources to get yourself caught up. But diving right in, verse 15, so Pilate, wanting to gratify the crowd, he released Barabbas to them, Bar-Abbas, the son of the father, as it's literally translated. And Pilate then delivered Jesus after he had scourged him to be crucified. Now, the order of activity that's provided here by Mark, our author, it presents an interesting flow of events that you might not be aware of, that in some ways you might have overlooked. First, this verse makes it clear that Pilate's first step was to release to the crowd Barabbas. And as we mentioned, it was a smart move politically. As was the custom of the feast, Pilate would release to them a prisoner. Barabbas was a revolutionary. He was a hero to the Jewish people. The mob outside of the portico there at the fortress of Antonio, the crowd that had gathered at sunset, it was a pro-Barabbas mob. They were there because this was the custom and they desired, they wanted more than anything else, their hero to be released. In so many ways, we've kind of I think, hammered on uh, the mob of Jews that are present in Jerusalem because you'll hear pastors say, one moment here they were saying, Hosanna, Hosanna, the king. And then just a couple days later, the same group of people were shouting out, crucify him. The problem is, is two different groups of people. When Jesus stood before this mob that had gathered for the release of Barabbas, no one even knew that Jesus had been arrested other than a few select people that had been in the garden who had run. The multitudes at large didn't know what was afoot, and this was by design for the religious leaders feared the mob. They feared the multitude. Jesus was a hero, and he had done nothing to dissuade them of their admiration. The trial itself was illegal. It happened at night. It was immoral, false testimony after false testimony. It was secretive, and all of this was by design. And so your Pilate and the mob that has gathered, they're clamoring for the release of Barabbas. So the first thing the wise politician does is he pacifies the mob. They're there for Barabbas, so he releases them Barabbas. As we mentioned last week, Pilate had a lot of tension with Tiberius, the Caesar at the time. His relationship with Rome was not on good footing. As a matter of fact, history tells us that in Pilate's situation, one more outburst, one more revolt, one more scathing letter from the religious leaders to Tiberius, and Pilate would be removed from office. This is not what he wants. And so he releases Barabbas to pacify the crowd as Mark says, to gratify the crowd. Then, Pilate delivered Jesus, note, after he had scourged him to be crucified, hoping he satisfied the mob who wants Barabbas, but thinking that maybe if I send Jesus to be scourged, in doing so, I could satisfy these bloodthirsty religious leaders. The phrasing here, it does indicate that the scourging of Jesus actually came before the sentencing of Jesus. According to John's gospel, it would seem that the scourging itself might have very well been one final attempt by Pontius Pilate 
to appease these bloodthirsty religious leaders without actually sentencing him to death. That maybe a good beating, maybe the, uh, them seeing the results of the scourging, that their hearts would be moved and that Pilate would be able to get out actually sentencing the man to death. In the first century, scourging was used to coerce a confession out of a prisoner. It could be that Pilate, standing there knowing that Jesus is an innocent man, sends him to be scourged so that he's provided an actual explanation or a reason that Jesus would say something or make some confession that then Pilate would be able to justify what would come next. According to the way that the scourging happened, if you started talking, as each blow is laid across your back, if you started chirping like a bird, confessing all of your sins, naming co-conspirators, the beating itself would be lessened. It would be lightened. If you remained defiant, kept your mouth closed, the beating would intensify. Imagine their reaction when something that has never happened before takes place. As they continue to beat Jesus, whip after whip after whip is laid across his bare back that Jesus utters not a word. You would think that at some point, you're starting to make confession simply to try to get yourself out, knowing that if you start to confess, the beating is lessened. But Jesus, he's not defiant, he's just being honest. Jesus had nothing to confess. The sinless one had committed no wrongdoing. And so they continued to beat him over and over and over again. Could Jesus name a co-conspirator? No, for this was a mission, a solo mission. There was no one who had his back. He had been abandoned by his friends. Imagine the report. The head centurion, he comes to Pilate and he's like, I've never seen anything like this. The man didn't utter a word the whole time. No matter what technique we used, no matter what's worked in the past, no matter what we did, it all proved for naught because he said not a word. So Pilate, after the scourging, he brings Jesus before the crowd, before the religious leaders one last time. But sadly, according to Matthew 27, when Pilate saw that he could not prevail at all, but rather at this juncture, a tumult was rising he took water and he washed his hands before the multitude and he said, I am innocent of the blood of this just person. You see to it. So he delivered Jesus to them to be crucified and they took and they led Jesus away. Now there are three things that jump out to me about Pontius Pilate. Three interesting observations I want to make. First, he knew Jesus was innocent. There was not a doubt in his mind that Jesus was not guilty of any wrongdoing. Jesus might have been eccentric. He might have been a little different. He might have been unique to anything Pilate had ever been exposed to before, but guilty of crucifixion. Jesus was no traitor. He was no revolutionary of sorts. From Pilate's perspective, he knew over and over and over again. He continues to affirm the innocence of Jesus, and he was the judge and jury. Even according to Matthew, he says, I am innocent of the blood of this just person. 
So Pilate knew that Jesus was innocent. But the other observation I want to make is that he tried everything in his power to avoid making a decision. I mean, any political maneuver that Pilate had in his bag of tricks, he tried. To the point that he initially begins, he's got an accent, he's from Galilee, that's technically uh, Herod's jurisdiction. I'll let Herod make a ruling. He was another puppet head of Rome. Herod's not going to play the game and sends Jesus back. And once again, Pilate's got Jesus standing before him. He does everything he can, first by trying to give the multitude an option. Barabbas or Jesus, but they choose Barabbas. He has him scourged, hoping to appease the crowd, but that doesn't work either. Pilate does everything he can to avoid making a decision. And though he tried to wash his hands concerning the matter, both figuratively and literally, the reality is that Pilate was the only one in Jerusalem that day who could decide the fate of Jesus. He knew Jesus was innocent. He avoided making a decision. Even in making a decision, he tries his best to weasel his way out, to say, this is not really on me, when in reality, the only person who made the decision that day to sentence Jesus to be executed, the only one who had the power to make a ruling on Jesus, was Pilate. And though he didn't know it at the time, for the rest of history, Pontius Pilate would be known by the one decision he made that day concerning Jesus. The one decision he tries to avoid, the one decision he tries to get out of, the one decision he tries to wash his hands concerning, the man couldn't. For all of history, can you name another ruling, another decision of Pontius Pilate? No. For the rest of history, he's known by the decision he made concerning Jesus, deciding what to do with the man from Nazareth. Though he didn't know it at the time, though the day began as any other, this one decision would prove to be the most important decision Pilate would ever make. You know, according to the Apostles' Creed, let me read you just the beginning of it. You'll find something interesting. A creed passed down from generation to generation of Christians, believers. They would say that I believe in God the Father, Almighty, maker of heaven and of earth, and in Jesus, his only begotten Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Ghost, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. Pilate will be known forever by the decision he so wanted to get himself out of. It's sad. Pilate, he reminds me of a lot of people in this world. For he knew who Jesus was. You see, Pilate willingly ignored divine revelation. Jesus stood in his midst, appeared in front of him, revealed himself through his word, and Pilate knew it and he was convicted over it, but he ignored the divine revelation provided and he intentionally went against his own conscience. He knew he was just, but he went against it. He resisted even the warnings of a wife who loved him, who came and told him, Honey, have nothing to do with the just man, for I've suffered many things tonight in a dream. So he has loved ones warning him. He has his own conscience leading him and telling him. He has revelation in front of him. But Pilate was easily swayed by what? By the opinions of others. And in the end, Pontius Pilate cared more about his present life 
than the one to come. You know, it's ironic that Pilate made his decision. Why? Well, he wanted to gratify the crowd so that they wouldn't revolt, so he could keep his job. He was willing to defy his conscience, revelation, to sentence Jesus, a just man, to death, so that his life wouldn't change, so that Jesus wouldn't upset his routine, so that they wouldn't revolt, so he could stay where he was, so that he would have power. And yet, ironically, just a few years after this, the Jews revolted anyway. A revolution was sparked. Pilate had to crush it. And he found himself, in the end, being banished by Rome to Vienna, to Austria, where history tells us that Pontius Pilate was given the option of facing his own Roman execution or taking the noble way out and killing himself. And though it's legend, but people say that Pilate ultimately killed himself by drowning, a man in disgrace. And imagine, think for a moment, that instance. As Pilate looks up, as his lungs fill with water, as he's grasping for a breath of air, as life departs from this earthly dwelling, and he finds himself opening his eyes in eternity to find whom sitting on the judgment seat? To find Jesus. Imagine that moment for Pilate. When the man he wanted to do everything he possibly could to avoid making a judgment on, he's now standing in front of. Oh, for that day when we stand before the judge. You might think that you can get yourself out of making a decision concerning Jesus. But that's in and of itself making a decision. For no man and no woman can play a middle ground. No one can play neutral concerning Jesus. The Bible says you're either for him or you're against him. You're either in the light or you're in the darkness. You either accept him or you reject him. There is no middle ground. Pilate tried to, but he couldn't, could he? He was known for all of eternity by one decision the decision he made about Jesus. And friends, you will be known for all of eternity by one decision that you make. And that is the decision you make concerning Jesus. There is one silver lining to the story. According to tradition, Pilate's wife, a woman by the name of Claudia Procula, she ended up, according to history and legend, becoming a convert that she ended up making a decision to follow Jesus and ended up having a profound influence in the early church. In his final letter, not just his final letter to Timothy, but more than likely his final letter at all, the Apostle Paul, who's writing possibly from Europe, maybe even Vienna, could be from a Roman cell, we're not sure, but he closes his letter to Timothy by going through some pleasantries, by sending greetings and gratitudes and farewells from other people, friends that they had in common. But there's an interesting side note, because in 2 Timothy, Paul tells Timothy, he says that Claudia sends her greetings. And it's my conviction that this is the wife of Pilate. She made the correct decision, and thus we know her for all of history of such. Now, before Jesus is sent to the scourging floor, we're kind of setting the blueprint. 
The order of events, Pilate releases Barabbas. He sends Jesus to be scourged. Jesus appears back before Pilate in the multitude. Ultimately, they continue to cry out, according to John 19, crucify him, crucify him. He washes his hands, according to Matthew. Then he sends Jesus to be crucified. Now, back to the scourging. Before Jesus ever gets to the scourging floor, you should note that he's already in really poor shape. Jesus initially has been abandoned by his friends which has not only caused psychological and emotional stress, but we talked about it a few weeks ago, that it produced increased inflammation levels in his body. Emotional betrayal by a loved one creates inflammation, causing pain to be exaggerated. Not to mention, during the six trials that Jesus uh, was taken to this evening, he's worked over pretty good. Just giving you a flyby, he's struck in the face for remaining silent when questioned. He's blindfolded, he's beaten, he's spent upon, he's taunted to name his attackers, on and on and goes. Understand, before Jesus is scourged, before he's even there, he's battered, he's bruised, he's swollen, he's bleeding, he's dehydrated, he's also lonely. He's been slandered, falsely accused, and he's sleep deprived. Now, Mark All he says is that Jesus was scourged. Mark sees no reason to elaborate on what a Roman scourging looked like because his audience at the time, they were all too familiar. Mark doesn't need to explain what took place with a scourging because everyone in the first century had seen a scourging. They knew what it was. However, for our benefit, we don't. So I'm going to explain. The first piece of the puzzle, the first stage in the process is that Jesus is stripped naked. He's laid totally bare, vulnerable. His hands are tied to this post above his head. He can't move. He is then whipped with a flagrum 39 times across his shoulders, neck, back, and legs. 39 times was actually a Jewish law. According to Jewish law, someone could only be scourged 40 minus 1, thinking that removing 1 was a sign of grace. Thanks. Appreciate it. Romans, though, it could be known to go more than 39. Their instructions was to beat the man to the point that he wasn't dead yet, but pretty close. As a matter of fact, most people died during a scourging. A flagrum was a short whip that was consisting of several heavy leather thongs with small bits of stone, rock, glass, whatever sharp materials they could find, interwoven into the actual leather, attached to the ends. Let me read you a description of an eyewitness to a scourging. We're told historically that at first the heavy thongs cut through the skin only. Then as the blows continue, they cut deeper into subcutaneous tissue, producing first an oozing of blood from the capillaries and the veins of the skin, and finally spurting arterial bleeding from vessels and underlying muscle. The small balls of lead first produce large, deep bruises, which are broken open by subsequent blows. Finally, the skin of the back is hanging in long ribbons, and the entire area is unrecognizable mass of torn, bleeding tissue. When it is determined by the centurion in charge that the prisoner is near death, or he has begun to confess his trespasses, the beating is stopped or lessened. It's brutal. It's brutal. Most of us have seen Mel Gibson's movie, The Passion of the Christ. Most of us are able to at least semi-imagine what it was like. 
but you're robbed of the smell. And even the greatest surround sound doesn't do justice to actually hearing in your presence a human cry of torment. Though you can watch it on a screen, you should understand with each blow, the onlookers would be sprayed with blood. It was a mess. And when I think of the scourging, I'm going to be honest. There's a question that comes to my mind. A question I think most pastors overlook. At least I haven't found too many that will address it. And that is why God would allow the scourging. I mean, think about it. I know that Jesus needed to die to save me from my sins, that he needed to be a sacrifice. But you know the sacrifice, the Levitical sacrifice, the sacrifice of the lamb, the lambs weren't beaten to death. It was a quick cut across the veins of the neck. It was instant. It was painless in many ways. Blood would be spilt. The innocents had to die to atone for sin. Okay, I get that. But Jesus is scourging. I mean, isn't that in some ways a little over the top? Isn't it a bit extreme? I mean, why not create a scenario whereby Jesus would experience a peaceful, quick, painless death? He needed to die, great. But why so brutal? Why? And I think as I contemplated this question this week, that there are four explanations to the necessity of the scourging. Aside from the fact that it happened and God allowed it and he has his reasonings and doesn't answer to us. But first, the scourging demonstrated the utter brutality of mankind. I mean, watching a Roman scourging, it defies our sensibilities. It hits us into a point within our, our soul and our psyche. We don't scourge today. It's inhumane. It's barbaric. These men were trained killers who took enjoyment in the exercise. So the scourging demonstrated how brutal mankind really is, how depraved we are. But I also think the scourging reinforced something important. It reinforced Jesus' sinlessness and innocence. For if there was ever any doubt from anyone present that day and in generations to come that Jesus was innocent, for a man to remain silent during a scourging, you had to be of high moral integrity. You had to be innocent. You had to be sinless. You see, in seeing Jesus being scourged, everyone there that day, if there was any doubt of his innocence, it was removed when he remained silent, when all he had to do was utter a word and it would be lessened. I also think the scourging, it highlighted the depth of Jesus' love for me. Because he did that for me. And he did that for you. We're told in Isaiah that it was by his stripes that we are healed. That even in the scourging, Jesus is taking the punishment that you deserve and that I deserve for him to do such a thing, to endure such an exercise. It only demonstrates his love. Do you think that the chains or the rope that they used to attach him to the top of that pole, you think that's really what bound Jesus to that moment? No, as we've mentioned Jesus utters two words in the garden and knocks the entire mob on their fannies. I am, and boom, 
Jesus was not being arrested. Jesus was surrendering. Jesus was allowing the process. He was not being subjected to it. And why? Though he might not have been bound with ropes, he was bound by love. A love for you and a love for me. But finally, I think the scourging, it also illustrated a concept that it's, it's a difficult pill to swallow, but one that we have to nonetheless, and that is the reality that the scourging illustrates God's righteous wrath towards sin. We know that the wages of sin is death. And as we'll see when we examine the crucifixion next week, though the flagrums might have been in the hands of the Romans, and though Jesus might have been dying for the sins of you and I, who was the one executing Jesus? Who was the one, if we take the picture of Abraham and Isaac literally, who's the one sacrificing his only begotten? It's, it's the Father. You see, when it's all said and done, God's wrath was poured out on Jesus. Why? Because that's what your sin demanded to be atoned for. Well, the soldiers, he's been scourged, brought back before sentence. Pilate tries to wash his hands, and they led him away into the hall called the Praetorium. They called together the whole garrison. They clothed him with purple. They twisted a crown of thorns. They put it on his head. They began to salute, Hail, King of the Jews. And some of this happens before and after. They struck him on the head with a reed, and they spat upon him. They are bowing the knee. They're worshiping him. They're mocking him. And they took the purple robe as they prepared to lead him to the execution site, they rip it off of him. And they put his clothes back on and they lead him out to be crucified. Now following his scourging, Jesus, he's untied. And immediately he's allowed to slump into the stone pavement. Jesus is drenched in his own blood. No doubt he's in shock from the beating most men didn't survive. From there the soldiers lead him to the hall called the Praetorium, which was a holding cell deep within the bowels of the fortress of Antonio, which was located on the northern section of the Temple Mount. And as they wait for Pilate to make his final ruling, the soldiers decide to kill time. Understand, these men have no connection to Jesus. They, they really don't even know who he is at this point. They're doing their job. This is what they're called to do, not to mention they're away from home, they're displaced, they're in Judea. And if you're from Rome, and now you're in Judea, you're waiting for your tour to get done so you can get back home. The feast time was tense, to say the least. If there was a chance of a revolution, it would have happened during the feast. These soldiers have been on edge for the last week. And now they decide to blow off some steam. And they do so with Jesus. They robe him across his shoulders. This purple robe, which instantly becomes saturated from the blood oozing from his back. They place a stick in his hand for a scepter, and they press a crown of large thorns into his scalp. Because the skull is extremely vascular, there is an incredible amount of blood that begins to protrude down his face and into his eyes. On a side note, and we'll talk about this a little bit with the B-sides, but I don't think it's an accident here that we find a crown of thorns. For the first place that we ever find thorns mentioned in Scripture which is significant according to the law first mentioned, that Jesus, in issuing God, in issuing the curse, 
the consequences of man's rebellion in the garden in Genesis 3, one of the byproducts of sin, one of the direct consequences, was that thorns would grow. And here we find the very byproduct yielded from the rebellion of man are being pressed into the skull of the Creator. And they mock Him. And they taunt Him. And they cry out that He's the King of the Jews and they struck Him repeatedly across the face. The verb tense throughout this entire section that Mark uses, it doesn't indicate a one-shot event. It indicates the verb tense, a continuation, that they were hitting Him they were hitting him over and over, and they were mocking him. Not one time, but there was a continuous mocking, that they spit on him. And not just a one-time spit, but they, they, in the whole process, they're all spitting. It's a constant, continual humiliation. And at some point, they take this makeshift scepter from his hand, and they strike him across the head, driving the crown of thorns deeper into his scalp, we're told that at some point, Jesus' beard is plucked from his face. I get a nose hair and brought to tears. Can you imagine the pain of having your beard ripped from your face? We're told in Scripture that Jesus was, was beaten to the point that he was unrecognizable. Not as being Jesus, but as being a man altogether. That you couldn't tell who he was or that he was a human. And as they prepared to leave... They're going to clothe Jesus, but they rip this robe that's become adherent to the blood, the serum in his wounds. As it's already begun to scab, the tear is excruciatingly painful. A bloody, a deformed Jesus, hardly recognizable. He's brought from the praetorium back to Pilate's chambers, presented before the crowd. Pilate makes a formal declaration. He looks to Jesus after washing his hands, and he says, You shall mount the cross. At this point, a heavy, unsanitary, wooden beam. It's just the crossbar. The, the vertical piece of the timber was typically left in place. Jesus would carry just the horizontal timber. It weighed approximately 150 pounds, and it's tied to his shoulders that hurts in and of itself, for his shoulders are in tatters. The pain of the timber rubbing across open wounds and sores. And then he's led out, and he begins a slow journey to the execution site, trying to carry a 150-pound piece of wood. They also did what they typically do. It was common for Rome, when they would make this kind of a procession, to tie around the neck of the prisoner his crime so that as the public could see it, they would recognize what crime he had committed, what he was worthy of death. As we'll see in Jesus' case, the inscription of his accusation was written, the King of the Jews. And you should understand that crucifixion, it was really not about killing a person. If you were just going to kill a person, there were a lot easier ways to do it. And Rome was pretty good at it. If you were a Roman, you weren't even crucified. They just cut your head off. It was quick, effective. A Roman execution, a crucifixion, it was not effective. It takes sometimes up to three days for the prisoner to ultimately die. It was not quick. It was not effortless. 
You had to have five guys on the payroll taking overtime for several days. You see, the point of a crucifixion was not just to kill the prisoner. It was to send a message. It was a PR event that would let the masses know that you didn't mess with Rome. As Jesus makes the journey to the execution site, it would seem as though that the weight of the beam, coupled with his blood loss, the fatigue, it produced the, the reality that Jesus was not going to make it. He couldn't make it. Matter of fact, we're told that he stumbles and he falls. He hits the ground. This rough wood at that point grinds into his lacerated skin and muscles, causing even more pain. And since the soldiers recognize that Jesus will be unable to carry the cross the rest of the way, and because, well, they're not going to do it, we're told that they compelled a certain man, Simon a Cyrenian, the father of Alexander and Rufus, as he was coming out of the country, passing by to bear the cross. Not wanting to carry the timber for themselves, not knowing Jesus would be unable to, the Roman soldiers invoked what's called the Agarian Rite, which meant that at any point a Roman soldier could just place the flat end of his sword upon a bystander's shoulder and at that juncture, you were required by law to carry whatever the Roman soldier wanted up to a mile, which is interesting because when Jesus is teaching uh, the multitudes about this, he says, if you're asked to carry it one mile, you carry it two. And so they pick out a random bystander saying, you must carry the load, and he is Simon the Cyrenian. Now, Simon was a common Jewish name, Simon Peter. Simon the Tanner. We have lots of Simons in Scripture. It was a Jewish name, and the Cyrenian indicated that he was from North Africa, more than likely Libya. His family, being Jewish, had been displaced at some point over the centuries. Legend says he very possibly could have been a black-skinned Jew, very similar to what we find in Ethiopia. Mark tells us something interesting about Simon that he was the father of Alexander and Rufus. That's kind of a bizarre detail to include, indicating that Mark and his audience knew who Alexander and Rufus were, and thus knew who their father was, Simon the Cyrenian. Most believe that from this event, Simon would give his life to Jesus. He would carry the cross and he would stay at the cross. And he would recognize the importance of the event. And he would pass his faith along to his sons. According to Romans chapter 16, verse 13, Paul mentions both Alexander and Rufus as being key leaders in the early church. I'm sure in the moment, as you could probably sympathize, Simon hated what the Roman soldiers had just done. He's there with his family. Maybe he's got young Alexander and Rufus. They've traveled a great distance to come for the Feast of Passover. Carrying the cross of a dead man, being exposed to the blood, would make him unclean, which would ruin the trip. He's not exactly thrilled that he's compelled, but what can he do? He must obey. I'm sure he looks at this man. He knows nothing of it. And he's thinking, I came here to worship God, and instead I'm carrying the cross of a criminal. Now, though in the moment, Simon might have chalked up the occasion as being rather inconvenient, in retrospect, 
this inconvenient moment, he would look back on as being maybe the most important thing that he ever did. You know, I've found that sometimes it's the ministry of inconvenience that ends up being the most powerful. It's the moment where you're looking at the clock, you got some place to be, and somebody needs to be ministered to. It's inc inconvenient for you to stay, but the Lord has ordained something more important. Now, aside from the physical limitations of the blood loss, his fatigue, the fact that it's just going to be difficult to carry the cross. It's like two bags of quickcrete laid upon your shoulders. It's not a light piece of wood. You have to at least consider, at least I do when I read through this, that why didn't Jesus bear the cross? I mean, aside from the obvious, like why at this point, when everything's symbolic, when everything's important, when everything has meaning and purpose, there's no filler to what's happening. It's all ordained by God. So what's significant about the fact that Jesus couldn't carry the cross, that he couldn't bear his own cross? Now, though it might be a minor detail in Mark's narrative, I believe that Jesus is teaching his followers a very important principle that no man can carry his own cross. In Mark chapter 8, verse 34, Jesus told his disciples that whoever desires to come after me, let him deny himself, take up the cross, and follow me. And in invoking the symbolism of the cross, Jesus is no doubt speaking of brokenness, death, and surrender. You see, the cross that Jesus spoke of, the cross that he carried, the cross he asked us to carry, it contains such a weight that the person to whose back it is strapped is unable to carry it. You see, the point of the cross is not for us to carry it, but for us to come to a point of surrender, to throw up our hands and say, I can't do it. You see, the cross that Jesus asks us to bear is a cross we can't carry and thus must be carried by someone else. It should drive us to knees, to our knees. Like as one commentator said, we can only pick up the cross. We can only choose the death of self, but the deed must be carried out by another. A savior must carry our cross. And the Roman soldiers brought Jesus along with Simon to the place Golgotha, which is translated place of the skull. Now Golgotha is the Greek transcription of an Aramaic term, meaning, according to Mark, place of the skull. And the Greek, the phrase is translated carmanium topas. And if I butchered that, so sue me, I'm not Greek. In Latin, which I'm also not Latin, so I could butcher this too, we get the phrase calvarea locus, which is translated into English calvary. Golgotha means Calvary. And it was at Calvary, John 3.16, that for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Hence why the church you attend is named Calvary 3.16. And Mark indicates that this place was known in the day. It was known as Golgotha. It was commonplace to the place Golgotha, which is translated place of the skull. Now, this phrase, Golgotha, 
It's an interesting word. Some see Golgotha as being a geographical descriptive reference. That's a mouthful. To a hill that was resembling a skull cap somewhere outside the city. That Golgotha, meaning place of the skull, that it was a hill. Geographically, it looked like, well, looked like a skull. Others believe that since Golgotha can be translated Golgotha, two words, it's actually a reference to the Mount of Execution, which means that it geographically didn't look like a skull, but it was known to be a place of execution. Others believe that the word indicates a mountain in which there was a popular cemetery place of the skull could be a reference to a common burial place. Others, and I think that this is one of the more unique theories, is that it could be that Golgotha is just a contraction of Goliath of Gath. It's the same word choices, meaning that it could have been a common location where the head of of Goliath, the head of Goliath of Gath, had been buried by David. That it was a common place that people recognized the remains of the giant. Now, history has wrestled with the actual location of Golgotha. And you need to bear with me for a moment because initially you might think this is laborious. I think that identifying the location of where Jesus is going is significant in a lot of ways that we'll get to in a moment. The Bible provides some historical and biblical clues as to the location of Golgotha. So we know that there's some indicators, some descriptions, some characteristics that this mountain has to fit to be in line with Scripture. It is a place of execution outside of the city. The Jews would not allow the Romans to execute within the city. It is no more than one mile because Simon has been invoked the Agarian way, which means that it's not a very far journey outside of the city. One in which Simon could carry the cross, fulfill his right, and be fine. We also know that the execution place is on a common roadway. This is just in line with the way that the Romans did executions. It's a PR event. They want you to see it. They want people walking by. They always did it along common, popular roadways. It's a public execution. Thirdly, the location we also know is in proximity to a garden graveyard for nobility. Later on, a very wealthy man named Joseph of Arimathea, running out of time because the Sabbat is about to take place, He petitions Pilate that he could bury the body. He takes the body, and very close by the execution site, Jesus is buried in the tomb of a wealthy man, not to mention Mary Magdalene. When when she comes, the whole scene unfolds. She mistakes a resurrected Jesus for whom? A gardener. So it's a wealthy tomb near a garden. That's what we know. Fourthly, and I think most significant, The location of Golgotha, the location of the execution site, would allow an individual standing there to peer into the inner courts of the temple. We'll get to it next week, but Mark 15, verses 38 and 39, we're told then the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. So when the centurion who stood opposite Jesus saw that, present tense. So we know his location, we know what he sees, He cried out, and he said, truly this man was the Son of God. Tatiana, writing in 160 AD, he said, and immediately the face of the door of the temple was rent in two parts from top to bottom. And the officer of the foot soldiers, when they saw that 
They were with him who were guarding Jesus when they saw the earthquake and the things that came to pass. They feared greatly. They praised God. And they said, this man was righteous and he truly was the son of God. And the multitudes came together in the sight and they saw what came to pass, that the veil in the temple had been rent in two. They returned and they smote their breasts, indicating even in 160 AD that common writers and commentators on the gospel narrative recognized that this centurion standing at the cross could see the temple veil being rent. Now, there are two theories as to the location of Golgotha. First, there is the traditional location identified by Helena, who is the mother of Constantine, that places it kind of in the northwest area outside the wall. Today, you can go visit the Church of the Holy Sepulchre, which was built on the site. Though not officially recognized by any church, most Protestants believe that just to the east of the Church of the Holy Sepulchre, this hill that you look at above a subway, not like a subway as in eat fresh, but a subway as in like a transit system, from that vantage point, there's this hill that looks like it's a skull. You look at it and you're like, that's a skull. So that's the other place that people identify Golgotha with. If you go with a Protestant tour, they're going to go there. There's a garden tomb close by. You can buy trinkets. Now, both of these locations, they do fit three of the four requirements biblically. But they fail to fulfill one requirement. Neither of these locations, because they're in the north and west, provide you the ability to peer into the temple to see the veil torn. You see, to me, the only location that fits the biblical requirements, the only location that I think fits an understanding of where Golgotha was, is actually the Mount of Olives. Let me explain. First, it fits within the biblical requirements. The Mount of Olives is located along a popular roadway from all of the Jews coming from Galilee, working up through Judea, Jericho, Bethany, Bethpage, the Mount of Olives, then into Jerusalem. It was a common popular roadway outside of the city, the Mount of Olives. At the southern base of the Mount of Olives was not only a garden, we're familiar with that one, right? The Garden of Gethsemane, but also a graveyard specifically designated for the nobility of Jerusalem. They've been excavated dating back to the first century. You can visit them today. And since the temple faced east, it opened to the east so that pilgrims would see into the temple as they came down the Mount of Olives. And the Mount of Olives being located just to the east of the city, the Mount of Olives gives you the only location, it gives you the only vantage point that you would have been able to look into the temple through the inner courts and to actually see the veil. The Mishnah wrote that all the temple walls were high, save only the eastern wall, because the high priest that burns the red heifer and stands on the top of the Mount of Olives which is where they executed the red heifer, should be able to look directly into the entrance of the sanctuary when the blood of the red heifer is sprinkled. So first, it fits within the biblical requirements, the Mount of Olives. Secondly, it presents a location 
consistent with biblical symbolism. I mean, geographically, the ramifications of the Mount of Olives being the the locale for Golgotha are powerful. Think of it. If Jesus is being led from the Roman fortress of Antonio to the Mount of Olives, what gate would he exit? It would be the north gate, also known as the sheep gate. In addition to that, he would find himself crossing through the blood-filled Kidron Valley before he makes the ascent up the Mount of Olives. The perfect Lamb of God passing through the sheep gate, through the blood of the Passover sacrifices, to be sacrificed himself, it seems symbolically consistent, not to mention the symbolism of Jesus' blood as he falls into the Kidron Valley, as he stumbles, that his blood being mixed with the blood of the atoning sacrifice of the lambs of Passover, it just adds to me an incredible picture. So the geographical ramifications are interesting. The spiritual activity also seems consistent. Most all of the activity done by the priests occurred within the temple precinct, except for two things. There were two things, according to the law, that had to take place outside of the eastern wall. Where was that? The Mount of Olives. First, there was what was called the scapegoat. On the Day of Atonement, according to Leviticus 16, the high priest cast lots in order to designate the fate of two identical goats. Ironically, die were cast with Jesus. And according to the way that the die rolled, these two lambs, who, according to the Talmud, are identical in size, color, and value, indicating that the fulfillment of both goats would find it being in one man, being Jesus. As the die was cast, one of the lands would be designated for the Lord, would be sacrificed in the temple as a sin offering for the people. The second goat, the scapegoat, atoned for by the sacrifice of the first, would be taken outside of the eastern wall, led up onto the Mount of Olives, and released into the wilderness, symbolically removing the sin of the people. The same location that Jesus would not only atone for the sins of all people, but by his sacrifice, we find that Jesus is the scapegoat permanently removing sin once and for all. And then the red heifer. I'm sure you're all familiar with the red heifer. The red heifer was in Numbers 19. It was in accordance with the laws of purification from sin. A red heifer had to be without spot, without yoke, And it had to be slaughtered and burned outside of the camp. The law for the purification of sin. The ashes of the red heifer would be preserved for future use. As purification of sin for anyone who incurred defilement by contacting the dead. This water offering, because they would mix the ash with water, it was not a regular offering. It was only an occasional ceremony that was universal in scope and reach. The the red heifer, the sacrifice, it was congregational. It was a corporate sacrifice made for all people, both Jew and Gentile. The ashes were significant for all people and for all people all time. It was universal. Therefore, when a person needed purification, they didn't have to go sacrifice a red heifer again. They just had to come and be anointed by the ashes of the red heifer. The sacrifice was permanent. I encourage you on your own to read Hebrews chapter 9. 
because in this passage, the author of Hebrews references the red heifer specifically. For Jesus, in my opinion, was sacrificed as the red heifer once and for all outside of the camp in the same location, the Mount of Olives, for the purification of the sin of all men. And Jesus was without spot. He was without yoke. And his one-time sacrifice was permanent for all. The process, it was a picture of the cross. Three elements were included. Cedar, which is the cross. Jesus' cross was made from cedar. Hyssop was used in the proceedings. Jesus was offered a drink from a hyssop branch on the cross. And then there was scarlet, which was a picture of the cleansing of the blood of Jesus. Same three elements, by the way, are also included in Leviticus 14, the cleansing ceremony of the leper. And leprosy is always a picture of sin. But I want to close with one more thing. Romans 19, we read that the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron, saying, Speak to the children of Israel, that they bring you a red heifer without blemish, in which there is no defect and on which a yoke has never come. And you shall give it to, and you want to make a note of this, Eleazar the priest, that they may take it outside the camp, that he may take it outside of the camp, and it shall be slaughtered before him. You have Moses, who represents the law. And you have Aaron, who represents the priesthood. The law and the priesthood were not allowed to sacrifice the red heifer. Matter of fact, the job was given to one man, a man named Eleazar. Now, literally, we know that he is the son of Aaron. But the name Eleazar is significant because it literally means God has helped. It means the helper. And you know, we have another character that will be coming up in our travels who goes by the same identity. God has helped, the helper, and his name is the Holy Spirit. You see, what we find is that Jesus was led to Golgotha, that Jesus was executed at Golgotha by God. And in that sacrifice, God has helped whom? He's helped you and he's helped myself. Next Sunday, we'll pick back up with a few other thoughts about the Mount of Olives before we look at the resurrection. So, Father, thank you for your word and what it says to us. In Jesus' name, amen.